Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Add Truth and Movies were pulling on our fright masks and picking up a fat kitchen knife as we carve our way through not one, but two Halloween movies. Jamie Lee Curtis returns, again, for David Gordon Green's sort of sequel to Halloween, confusingly called Halloween. Michael Myers murdered five people. And he's a human being we need to understand. In the film club, by popular vote, it's Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. And with not a pumpkin in sight, Italian maverick Matteo Garoni's new film may be the only violent crime drama to also feature competitive poodle grooming. That's Dogman. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, so I am um, Nick Donkoff and I'm a guest host this week. So I'm in the strange position of introducing two people who are here all the time and really should be introducing me. But uh, hello to uh, Hannah, Hannah Woodhead. Hi. And hello to Adam, Adam Woodward. Hello. We've done this together before, Adam. Hannah and I have not. So I guess the first thing we should do is have a look at some of the uh, correspondence that has, as ever, flooded in. First man last week, of course. Uh, I was only listening to your podcast the other day and enjoyed very much your chat about First Man and completely enjoyed your chat about The Right Stuff, which, you know, if you haven't heard the last podcast, you should go back and listen to that again because the two moon movies together was fantastic. Uh, So we got an email from Robert Glock, who is in... Herndon VA. VA is, I think that's Virginia, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. So it's probably from an American. So or Vancouver. Here's a, oh, it could be. <laughs> you know, if he's from Canada, he's not technically an American. But anyway, he's transatlantic. I was eight and a half years old when Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon. I clearly remember the Apollo missions leading up to Apollo 11, the incredible attention that those missions attracted. Blah, 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 blah. Therefore, for me, the movie First Man was an intriguing look at a familiar story from a different point of view, namely that of Neil Armstrong himself. Adam Woodward. He's used both names. I don't think that's a good sign. It's not a good sign. It's like being told off by your mum. Adam Woodward complains that the movie only scratches the surface of the characters. But the whole point, Adam Woodward, just added that, mm-hmm. uh, is that Armstrong in particular was emotionally unscratchable. That was both his great strength as an astronaut under unthinkable pressure and his great weakness as a husband and father and friend. What he didn't say, what he didn't do, spoke deeply about the type of man he was and gave me great insight into why he was chosen and why he succeeded. This is a personal film about one of the most watched events in human history and I I thoroughly enjoyed it, says Robert. Fair dues. I mean, I would question the merit of making a film about someone who you basically acknowledge you can't even get to. I I get the point. Also, sort of the premise of First Man is... 
we're going to show you yeah. the story of Neil Armstrong that you have never seen because he's never really spoken about it. Yeah, should have been Second Man. Should have been a Buzz Aldrin film. Buzz Aldrin, you know. You'd, it would have been a different. It would have been slapstick. I think the fascinating thing about First Man, which they don't touch upon, is and something I didn't know going in was that Neil Armstrong served in the Second World War, mm. and I think that would have been fascinating to maybe look a bit more into that and and maybe how that impacted his life. I, I wonder if that's to do with the way Hollywood do biopics, because the, you know the long tradition of doing biopics is you do cradle to grave, and it's yeah. that has really gone out of fashion, hasn't it? It's become fashionable now to tell a story either coming in halfway through or quite often actually, you know, after the interesting bits happened with the occasional flashback. So you don't often get that, you know, that full nuts and bolts uh, kind of movie anymore. Having said that, my great takeaway from Robert Gluck's uh, email is. Um, Emotionally unscratchable. Mm. I'm going to use that phrase. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what for. We also got. Uh, um, we got a mention from Kean. Did you say Kean's a colleague of yours? Kean is. So he works on our sister magazine, Huck. Ah, the great Huck. Yeah. So Kean uh, sends an internal message, probably. Basically, guess, just yeah. basically fired one off down the pneumatic tubes, and it just drops yeah. onto your desk like something out of uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Listen to the podcast. I was kind of obsessed with that movie as a kid. The right stuff, he actually means. Rewatched it countless times. I got so into it that I wrote letters to NASA and Chuck Yeager. Is it Yeager or Yeager? Yeager, Yeager, yeah, Yeager. Spouting exactly what I loved about them. Miraculously, I got replies from, but this is very exciting. NASA sent me a stack of 8x10 glosses of cool space shit. Can I say shit? I've said it. Uh, <laughs> Chuck Yeager's secretary sent me a curt note on an intimidatingly headed paper saying something to the effect of... General Yeager does not have time to write letters to little children. That's awful. <laughs> I was kind it's of very, crushed. It's a very Chuck Yeager secretary thing to do, though. And of course, in our heads, that's, that's actually Sam Shepard <laughs> dictating that curtly to his secretary. I don't have time for this. Uh, you and I could have riffed out over this one. Uh, it would have been a podcast jam for the... I think he's suggesting some kind of hybrid podcast. I think we'll get him on next time, yeah. The other movie I was obsessed with as a kid was Sam Peckinpah's Convoy. So make a mental note on that one for me, Good Body, which, as anyone who knows Convoy knows, is a little reference to... I love Convoy. Maybe um, like, when we have film club in future, we should just find someone who loved the film as a kid and be like, right, come on, come and tell us about this weird movie you like. It's a good idea, is uh, films I was obsessed with when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's a whole podcast on its own, isn't it? But we, we, shouldn't give these, <laughs> we shouldn't give those ideas away for free. Anyway, so that's the chat about last week's. Uh, next week, we'll have chat about this week's and what people will be corresponding with us about. Then is Halloween, which is coming up next. Michael Myers is a human being who killed his sister when he was six years old. And he came after you. We just want to know why. We want a glimpse inside his mind. Michael Myers murdered five people. And he's a human being we need to understand. They're transferring him. Tomorrow, seven o'clock. Yeah, he'll be locked away until the end of his days. That's the idea. Laurie, we saw him. We met with Michael. I showed him the mask. There was nothing. No response, nothing. He won't talk to anyone. Never has, but I think he might speak with you. So that's a clip uh, from Halloween, directed by uh, David Gordon Green. And in that clip, what you heard was uh, the basic outline at the beginning of the story is that a couple of British podcasters, (laughs) which obviously is... Riley amusing for people who actually are on British podcasts, uh, but are determined to get to the bottom of this 
true crime story. And so what they do is they go and they see Michael Myers in a um, high security psychiatric facility. And then they go and uh, interview Laurie Strode on her uh, property as well. So in that clip, you heard Jamie Lee Curtis returning as Laurie Strode and quite frankly, giving them short shrift. Hannah, is there more that you'd like to add to what the story is actually about? Have we covered it there or should we just get straight into talking about it? I think that that covers the basic premise. I mean, I assume that a lot of people listening will have seen the trailer and kind of know what they're in for, you know. They go to the prison, it becomes apparent that Michael's going to be transferred, so they need to speak to him now whilst he's still in the psychiatric ward before he goes to a sort of maximum security. There's no real clarity over why he's being moved. He's just being moved. He's just being moved. Budget cuts, maybe. I don't know. They don't really go into it. Sometimes you just want that in a horror movie. You don't want a lot of exposition. You just want... Here we go again. Yeah, yeah, of course, you know? especially with a movie that's had 18 different sequels already that we're in, immediately encouraged to forget about. <laughs> Although I do think there's something interesting. I think the reason... So it's been made by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, which is quite a surprising choice of people <laughs> to take over this franchise. Uh, David Gordon Green has sort of flitted between making quite broad comedies like Pineapple Express. Well, that's basically Danny McBride's bread and butter as well, isn't it? But then he makes these sorts of interesting, slightly grittier indie movies in between, like... Um, it's not true to movies if we don't talk about Nicolas Cage at least once a week. He made that movie Joe with Nicolas Cage, which I really, really enjoyed yeah. a few years ago. But there's no horror background. What they've done is they've gone right back to 1978 and said, we're just picking up off the back of that movie 40 years on. Forget absolutely everything that's happened in everything in between. From a commercial point of view, I can see the sense in that because what they're saying is, if you liked the 1978 <laughs> Halloween but you're not interested or don't like the others, you can pick up again here, which I actually think there are quite a lot of people who love that first movie but aren't bothered about the others. I think forgetting that everything in between is a lot easier easier uh, said than done because especially as we'll find out later with Film Club, some of that stuff you just cannot unsee or forget. <laughs> but no, I think the idea of retconning the, the franchise, as it's, as it's called, is like quite a smart move here. It makes sense. I mean, the story picks up pretty much exactly 40 years after the original. The characters, there's obviously a lot of stuff that's happened in between, which we sort of get glimpses of in this film. But mm. yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I think from a writing point of view, from a creative writing point of view, sitting down and thinking like, how have these characters developed emotionally? What would they be like now? How has this kind of story affected them? And that's mainly Laurie Strode we're talking about. And, and actually, there has been a Halloween sequel before that sort of dealt with her post-traumatic you know, disorder-related stuff. Mm. But I think what's interesting about this is you get these three generations of women. So there's Laurie Strode, uh, and then there's also her daughter, played by Judy Greer, who apparently has been brought up in a kind of survivalist way by Laurie because Laurie is obsessed with the idea that Michael Myers one day will come for her and they all need to be ready. As a result, as adults, they're completely estranged and Judy Greer's daughter, Alison, just happens to be that perfect teenage age where she's going to be going to a Halloween prom and we've got another teenage girl to chase down those streets if necessary, if that's what they <laughs> want to do. There is something gratifying about the fact that there are three major female roles in a movie like this, isn't there? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, one of the best things about the film is that the women are consistently proven to be smarter and more capable than the men around them. And the men kind of die in these increasingly ridiculous ways while the women just get on with it. And, uh, you know, I think it really plays against the idea of um, the final girl and the... 
the helpless babysitter running away. Like, there's a great bit near the end, I'm not going to spoil it for people, which kind of, like, just flips that on its head completely. And it's, yeah, for me, I, I mean, I really, really love the original Halloween and I think this is as worthy a kind of um, sequel as we could have got. Funnily enough, like, when I saw it, I saw it a couple of months ago in Toronto and a lot of people were complaining it was too funny. They were like, oh, it's not scary, it's too funny, I don't like all the humour. But for me, like, I thought that totally worked. I think it's refreshing to have a horror movie that doesn't rely on jump scares. It totally throws back to the 70s and 80s without feeling like it's stuck in the 70s and 80s. It's just a sort of real blend of comedy and horror that, yeah, I totally was enamoured of it. There's an interesting thing about sequels, which is there's, I think there's an absolute split between what audiences want from sequels and what filmmakers want from sequels. So what oh, filmmakers yeah. want to do is they want to do something new and they want to do something different. They want to introduce <laughs> you to all the great ideas that they didn't get into the first movie, or at least that happens a lot. You know, that's basically all the Star Wars prequels. But <laughs> what an audience wants is they really just want the same again, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit better, but they don't actually want different people. I mean, we'll talk about this when we come to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. You know, that is a that is a classic example of that. I also thought there was something interesting in comparisons outside the horror genre, which, you know, as you say, Hannah, it sort of goes against that screaming girl trope that we've seen a million times. But what it reminded me of was more films that were very much coming out in that period at the end of the late 70s and early 80s. Halloween, Terminator, the original Terminator and the Alien. They are all faceless uh, aggressors mm. fought down by tough women. And that sort of disappeared for a long time. And I thought a lot of the kind of uh, Laurie Strode tooling up really reminded me of Sarah Connor doing that in Terminator 2. And that's no bad thing in my book. Yeah, I mean, we, we find her in this film essentially living on a compound, similar to the one they go to in Terminator 2, where they, where they do tour themselves up. And yeah, I think one of the really clever things about this film is it teases the idea that Michael Myers is, is a human and there's some way that you can like get through this veneer and actually mm-hmm. like connect with him. And they tease very early on the reveal of his face. Nearly, I mean, you really nearly. And it's you're kind of wondering, like, are they essentially going to spoil the whole, the yeah. whole party here? Yeah, but yeah. really, really clever. Don't. There's a shot early on, and I noticed this when I watched it for the second time, when very much from a distance, but you do see his face. It's wow. very blurry, but I was like, oh, I didn't spot that the first. And you wouldn't, if you didn't know what was going about to come, mm. you wouldn't notice it. So it has repeat watching value as well, which I think... So am I right in thinking that in this movie, it's the same guy playing Michael Myers as from the 1978 film? Yeah, so Nick Castle has come back to do a sort of... Um, I think he's sharing the role with someone else. They do a kind of like, you know, right. Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca it, thing. It's a slightly publicity-friendly <laughs> re-emergence. Of course, the other big question is, how has that inside-out rubber William Shatner mask survived for 40 years? I mean, it looks it looks pretty knackered. That's actually one of the nods to, I think it's the Rob Zombie Halloween movies that had the mask looks a little bit more like that. And what they, I mean, what they do is they do try and have their cake and eat it, and why wouldn't you? Which is, I think they do throw in kind of Easter eggs for people who are familiar with the film's... In yeah, between. It's a nice Halloween 2 reference, like straight away, like within the first 10 minutes of the film. I really like that. I think uh, there's a lot of fans out there who would be a bit like, I can't believe they've just erased like 30 years of Halloween history. But I think that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride have said like they were such massive fans of 
the series and they basically begged John Carpenter to let mm. them make the film. And then one of my favourite bits of trivia about this film is that Jake Gyllenhaal, who had mm. made Stronger with David Gordon Green, went oh, to Jamie course, Lee Curtis, yeah. who is his sort of unofficial godmother. Really? Yes, and it, and he said to her, I think you should meet David and talk about maybe doing this movie together. And they did. So basically Jake so Gyllenhaal made this he's happen. The, he's the fixer. He's Yeah, he's... Um, Right there, along with us, all excited about a new Halloween movie. So, I mean, I know it's not really fair to do this, but where does this rank in the pantheon of Halloween movies, do we think? I think certainly post the the first Halloween, it's right <laughs> up there for me. Maybe on a par with, like, the second one. I think the first two are, like, very, very strong, and everything beyond that you can basically scrap. There's a lot of fans of H2O. Yeah, there's a lot of fans of H2O. I always get that confused with The Resurrection, but I remember they I came know. out at a similar sort of time. I'm just saying that I know there are a lot of fans of that one. I can't even remember which one that is myself. I think that was... Is that's that the one, one with LL Cool J? Or is that Resurrection? H2O is the one with a local J, yeah. I think. And he but like... basically, the, the whole franchise, storyline-wise, I think it has been a very intelligent move to just put all that to one side. And I like the fact they've got a lot of nods to the, the series generally in there. I yeah. think it feels like a film. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of understanding of, what, you, as you said earlier, Nick, what fans actually want from a Halloween film. And just on that level, I think it works. I do worry that this is a bit of a Force Awakens style mm-hmm. uh, soft reboot where essentially you're so relieved that it's not yeah. a car crash. Maybe in a few years we'll look we're back at it and be like, mm, pick it apart a little bit. <laughs> I mean, we've already said there are a few plot holes and a few kind of cheap developments of the story, but it is it quite satisfying. Job. It's quite entertaining. It I, I do love the comedic elements. Yeah. They definitely soften the tension. John Carpenter has always had comedic elements in all of his films. One of the things is John Carpenter said there won't be any more after this, after this which is hard not to laugh he at. He says that every, because I, every I think, few years. I think David Gordon Green is, and Danny McBride have said that they have sort of some ideas for what will be the next one. So, I mean, as long as this is a hit, this is going to be another one, isn't there? They're never going to not, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I interviewed John Carpenter a few years ago and his thoughts on this, I think, are very much like if they're going to write me a, a cheque, yeah, then I'm fine. As long he's like absolutely fine yeah. if he's getting something out of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a long history of people who are attached to these original projects, and their approval becomes important. Yeah. James Cameron is another one. Yeah. There's going to be a new Terminator movie, but this time James Cameron has approved. Well, I think you'll find that he approved the last one as well, yeah. and that was an absolute disaster. But, but fair he- enough to John Carpenter. I mean, he, you know, as far as I'm concerned, keep writing him checks. He's earned them. You know, he's earned them for setting up all these I great mean, movies. He came back to do the music for this one with his son, and which I love is the music. Very nice. And I was reading an interview with him, a great. Interview view with him about Halloween where he kind of said yeah I'd love to make another movie but all I do now is play video games and do fantasy football so it's like fair play man like you know he's had a very long career he must be tired so well you say that he's actually still I mean only this week he's, he's going on tour with his doing his music so. is he yeah yeah so I mean he's, he's still, he can sit down for that though can't he well probably I mean he's still active like you say with, with his son they are, yeah. they're like touring together he's writing new material he's obviously also doing um I guess this is like a kind of refit of his old score from the first Halloween, mm. but very much feels like a new piece of work, which is impressive, I think. More power to John Carpenter's elbow. We should do some scores. Let's start with... Well, Hannah's done most of the talk, so let's start with Adam. OK. Yeah, anticipation. I think I was excited initially by the idea of David Gordon Green tackling this one. And actually, after Hannah had sent a little excited message around on our WhatsApp group, after seeing the film in Toronto, I was even more excited. So I would go actually four for anticipation, probably four for enjoyment as well, and maybe a three in retrospect. Okay. Hannah? I'm trying to remember what I said in my review. But, no, 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 you don't get to um, do that. <laughs> four in anticipation because I really was 
excited about this, you know. I mean, the trailer, I think, was great as well, the first trailer for it. Um, and then a four in enjoyment. I think my enjoyment of this, a lot of it came from the fact I was in a sort of very packed out house in Toronto. And at the end, Jamie Curtis came out and said, like, happy Halloween, mother which was the coolest thing that could have happened <laughs> and then in retrospect to four I mean, say I've seen it again and it really holds up for me I think it's yeah I think it's great I don't know whether my scores are required because I'm the host but I would broadly agree with both of you the only difference would be because I'm not working in your office and I'm not privy to your whatsapp messages etc etc I had three anticipation and then it upped to a four when I saw it which is nice which <laughs> yeah, is nice. sometimes the less you know the better we're going to do Dogman next Moving away from Halloween movies, just for a few minutes, because I'll be coming back onto them before you know it, we've got a very, very different kind of movie, Dogman, an Italian movie from director Matteo Garoni. He's probably best known still for his 2008 movie, Gamora, but in between that and this, his actual previous movie was called Tale of Tales and was a very, very different beast. So it's a bit of a return to crime for him. Adam, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the plot of what I've already heard you call Dogman? Dogman, yeah. Um, well, it's it's Matagoran going back to his roots a little bit in terms of the crime setting. It's set on the outskirts of Naples in a very rough and run-down neighbourhood and basically follows a diminutive titular dogman played by Martello Fonte. He is a dog groomer by trade and he basically gets mixed up with a local bully, a sort of brutish ex-boxer mm-hmm. called Simone, and he their relationship is is basically what drives the film narratively. But as with Corona, he's so interested and obsessed with the whole crime setting. And I mean, this film is like grime right under its fingernails. It's such a kind of bleak watch in that sense. It's it's unbelievably bleak. And I do think that the success of... Well, I'm going to straight away say that I really, really liked it. The success of the film for me does hinge a lot on the fact that they found this extraordinary location outside Naples that is just unbelievably grim. It's clearly a sort of a state right by some sort of marshland that has been left to rot for 30 years. So it absolutely looks post-apocalyptic. It looks like it's just dropped off the face of the map. It's rubble and it's mud. It's always raining or drizzling. It's dark grey skies the whole time. And this little guy, played by Marcello Fonte, who is physically diminutive and has these kind of bulging eyes and this prominent nose. He reminded me a bit of Peter Laurie. You know, he has this kind of needling, slightly rodent-like way about him. He's clipping dogs, and he sets it up brilliantly. The opening scene is him trying to hose down this terrifying sort of fighting dog, some kind of pit bull cross that is baring its teeth, but he's being so unbelievably kind and gentle to it. And immediately you have this setup of the world that he's living in, which is so unremittingly brutal, and how does a relatively meek character survive in that world? Yeah, and it is ultimately a story about a man who's pushed to the edge of of his (laughs) capabilities for compassion and and basic human decency. And I think the real strength of the film is the way it sets up this guy as as such a benign, loving character. And there's a wonderful scene fairly early on where he he gets caught up in, in this robbery basically and one of the people with him for no reason just takes the I think it's a chihuahua it's as they're driving away because he's like the getaway driver and as they're driving away he said oh that chihuahua was driving me mad well what did you do about it yeah so he chucks the chihuahua in the the freezer (laughs) 
and leaves it there basically to die and, and yeah he, he goes back to rescue it and it's it's a very uh, really moving and quite beautifully played also out very scene. tense there's nothing more tense than a scene where someone goes back to the scene of a crime to try and rectify something but then you get this absurd bit of him thawing out a dog yeah. <laughs> under a warm tap I mean as I was watching it, I was thinking A how did they do how this how did they do this yeah. and B would it really work if you basically took like a dog out of a freezer and put it under anyway I'm not going to try it I would love to know how they actually because the dog is is completely stiff. It reminded me, there's a famous old scene in a film called The Andromeda Strain where mm. you basically see a monkey being asphyxiated. Yeah. And it's supposed to be that it's being exposed to this alien kind of parasite. Strain. This strain. And and actually, I think how they achieved it was something like they, they filled the room with like carbon monoxide and just at the point where the monkey passed out. <laughs> the good old days. The <laughs> they guessed the monkey, but <laughs> just, just to the point where it was safe so they yeah. could kind of, and a guy yeah. apparently was stood next to it with Did an oxygen Did he sign a mask. consent form though? Well, this, and, but if you watch the scene, I think there's a point where the the guy uh, with the oxygen mask who's ready to revive the monkey just steps into shot just too early before they cut away so you just see him come in but I wonder whether they did something like that with this because I mean it's wonderful acting by the dog if not I thought the dog was terrific it's one of my favourite dog performances in recent years but it's basically again a sort of quick way of seeing the tremendous compassion of this guy and also you, you know you get the feeling that circumstance has just pushed him into a position where he has no choice but to do what he's sort of slightly forced into doing and in this small community, brutish violence is unstoppable. It's and, a way of life. Yeah, so this guy, Simone, is just a hulking brute. Again, it was it's one of those kind of, where did they find this guy? Because he is perfect. You know, he, he just looks like a brick wall. And when he tells him, you're going to have to do this for me, there's no way out. At one point in the film, some of the other guys from the town get together and say, what are we going to do about this guy, Simone? We should report him. And they say, there's no point. He'll come back in two months and it'll be a lot worse than it was before. So there's this idea that they're up against an unstoppable force i thought he was tremendous as well actually eduardo pesky which is you know less glamorously i think that's edward fish in english isn't it <laughs> but he's um i thought he was tremendous he really reminded me of those early movies that we saw of matthias schoenart when you know when he did rust and bone and bullhead mm. just this kind of unbelievable it's just a physical physicality presence, yeah. this is much more about kind of Low-level criminality. This isn't about the mafia. This is just about what do you do if somebody's going to punch you in the face and break your legs if you don't do something. So in a way, he sort of focused his vision more on this movie. I do think it relies very heavily on this central performance from Marcello Fonsi. Did you unreservedly like him all the way through? Early on, there's this scene where he... Um, I think it's when we kind of first meet Simone as well. Like He comes to Marcello's house and asks for some cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and Marcello's like, I'll give it you if you leave, because my daughter's here. Yeah. And he refuses, and he's going, Simone, Simone. And I was just like, this is very like serious and sad, but also very funny. He has got quite a whiny voice. This is the character. Like, you know, there's a sense that he just has no ability to stand up for himself he's so physically diminutive it's important that you never think that he could stand up exactly to these people. exactly he is i mean it's called dogman he is a real underdog he's you know he's got this incredibly high-pitched voice which yeah. makes it very difficult in the kind of in some moments to take what he's saying seriously because you're just like oh my god he sounds hilarious at least for me but 
there's a lot of like sadness that comes, especially the ending. Like the ending's kind of heartbreaking, and the scenes of him with the dogs are so like just sweet and tender. And there is, again, as I said, like, as I said in the intro to the top of this podcast, you know, there is a scene of proper competitive grooming where yeah. he's having to do a poodle, and there's something very sweet. It's a nice juxtaposition the dog grooming world and this brutal underclass there's something very um sort of like buster keaton about the sight of him like there's a giant like alsatian not an alsatian it's like a great day great day and he's washing it and it's stood in the sink and it's taller than he is basically and it plays on that a lot the absurdity of his job and the absurdity of his situation and oh you say it doesn't really deal it's not dealing with kind of the cliche like the mafia it's dealing with this very i think a very real reality in a lot of um small towns especially around naples which kind of does have a reputation for organized crime and like violent crime in general and it's dealing with that kind of a reality i don't think we get to see especially in a lot of um films about italy Italy that aren't made by italians and i think uh, garone's really like tried very hard to give us something real but also there's a slight sort of tilt, a knowing sort of... Mm. I think there's also in, something interesting in the codependency of the relationship between the person who's doing the bullying and the person <laughs> who's being bullied, which I think is interesting. You know, it would have been easy. When they're saying, what can we do about Simone? You know, can we get him killed? Uh, you know, I'm actually sitting there thinking, <laughs> yeah, get him killed. He's really got it coming. And then we'd, be, we'd all be OK. But actually, he ends up saving him. They end up having a sort of codependent relationship. It's like he can't quite function without this muscular... Because every now and again, there are almost these tiny glimmers that maybe they could be friends if he wasn't so high on coke and massively <laughs> violent all the time. And it's like, that's all he wants. He's just like, can't you be nice to me? It, yeah. uh, which is Which sort of heightens the tragedy of it. I thought it was brilliant in the way that it set up um, the whole environment and the, the way it dealt with these characters. With this kind of film, it has to travel towards a dramatic denouement. We, we can't really talk about it, mm-hmm. but did it go in a direction that you wanted it to? I think it went in a direction that I was fully expecting it to. Right. So on that level, I think I absolutely loved the first hour. Yes. I think it's wonderful just basically being immersed in this setting and, and getting to know Marcello and, and the dogs especially. And I think it runs out of steam a little bit. I, th- I think the ending is you realise that a lot of the juxtapositioning and, and manipulation basically that's preceded the ending has been constructed in a way that is supposed to make the ending feel more surprising, mm. but I felt it was actually the opposite. Hannah? Yeah, I, I'm the same. I think... Um the first hour is is sort of very good and very engaging and then it just kind of gets into more kind of traditional like crime drama I think there are a couple of moments near the end where he tries hard almost stylistically to say this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go but it's debatable whether actually you know (laughs) maybe it does anyway so it'd be interesting to see what he's doing next I don't know what he's doing next I don't know whether either of you two know what he's doing next but like I say the last one was a sort of really heightened magical realist set of fairy tales featuring Salma Hayek eating someone's heart and a sea beast at the bottom of a pond and his next film you know this film is a social realist crime drama so you know this is a guy who uh, does feel like he's he's not in a particular box Mm. he can do what he likes so it'll be interesting to see what he does next shall we do some scores let's start with hannah so maybe a three in anticipation i didn't really know very much about it i hadn't actually seen taylor tales so i just didn't really know very much but i like dogs so i was excited about that and then maybe maybe a four in enjoyment i think it is 
it's great until it's not for me. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, like a three in retrospect. I think I'm excited to see what Garone does next. I'm excited to see what Marcello does next. I I, I really like him. I think uh, he he's great in this. Adam? Yeah, four for me for anticipation. I'd seen his, his last couple in Cannes, especially really like reality from 2012, mm. which didn't get um, a wide distribution over here, but I think that's one of his more interesting. That's where he feels like he's pushing himself a little bit more creatively and stylistically. Um, I would say a three in enjoyment and maybe a two in retrospect. I just think the ending feels a bit of a cop-out and the performance is what carries the whole thing for me. Yeah, I would just encourage people to go and seek out or revisit Gamora if you haven't already. I think three in the middle and a two at the end is, I think that might be, (laughs) I think you might be slightly harsh then. I think I'd agree with both of you that it's sort of, I found fault with it afterwards that I didn't actually find at the time. I thought it was great when I was watching it and it's only now that I'm discussing it that I think, Uh, but that's, you know, I thought it was great. Do get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. You might agree with us. You might not agree with us. The more violently you feel one way or the other, the better, because that's what's more interesting. But let us know if you agree with us in in totality as well. We like the affirmation. That's uh, Dogman. We're going to talk next about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, We don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it.
That's a clip from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And rather than talk about the plot immediately, it's sort of important to talk about what Halloween 3, Season of the Witch is right at the beginning. I should say <laughs> that uh, on the previous podcast, um, we put it out. I say we, I wasn't here. But it was put out there, vote for which Halloween movie we should talk about on Film Club this week. And Anton, uh, who was on the show uh, last time, made a big push for you've got to do Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and lo, it did come to pass. Was it because Anton gave everybody a steer? Was it because this is the one that everybody really loves? Or is it just that this is the best one to talk about, which it may very well be? It's not really a Halloween movie, is it, Hannah? No, it's not. You know, already you can tell from the tone of my voice that I was not impressed. A lot of yeah, there's a lot of an outpouring of support for this film on social media when we threw it out and said... Uh, which one should we do? And then when I asked everyone on Twitter, hey, what do you think of the movie? Like, is it fair that it's got a sort of 40% on Rotten Tomatoes? And everyone was saying, I don't know what you're talking about. This movie is a classic. Everyone loves this movie. No, not everyone loves this movie. I do not love this movie. And I love the Halloween franchise. Hadn't seen this. And I um, kind You've of heard sat... About it. You've heard about sat, it. I'd heard about it, you know, but it's not a sequel to Halloween or Halloween 2. What? It's kind of... It actually positions those those films as, as fiction, fiction. Yeah. and there's a great scene where like you see you saw the uh, the Halloween extravaganza like on television where mm. you see Michael Myers and it's yeah it's like they're movies within this bizarre universe. So John Carpenter, after the first two movies, had come up with this idea that basically the best way to proceed with the Halloween franchise. It's worth remembering. It's worth casting your mind back to the early eighties. There weren't sequels that went mm. on and on and on. There was the James Bond movies. That was it. I think we were about to get Rocky Three, but there were jokes in Airplane about mm. Rocky 25 happening in the year 2000 <laughs> or whatever. That's because there weren't long-running franchises. It didn't happen. So they were sort of trying to figure out how it would work. Will audiences see a third film on the same subject? They decided, presumably, no, they won't. So what they came up with was the idea that Halloween 3 would be a different story that happened on Halloween, and next time around we'll do another story that happens on Halloween and so on. It didn't do well, and so that <laughs> idea was immediately ditched, and it was back we go to Michael Myers. There's no Michael Myers, there's no Laurie Strode, there's none of that. So the story, as such as it is, it always makes you laugh out loud to talk about it, is that basically it opens with a guy dying in mysterious circumstances and Dr. Chalice, Dr. Daniel Chalice, the hospital, um, thinks there's something weird going on and he realises this guy was clutching a Halloween mask uh, made by Silver Shamrock Novelties he starts thinking that there's some kind of conspiracy to do with these Halloween masks that is that are being advertised on the TV with this extraordinarily catchy jingle all day, every day. Every kid wants these masks, and so he goes to find this factory in a small town, which, weirdly, is all Irish. It's an <laughs> Irish town where this guy who you heard in that clip called Connell Cochran runs this mysterious, almost like Willy Wonka-esque, factory that makes novelties and everybody in the town seems a bit strange it's a bit like an extended episode of the twilight zone or something like that more than a movie isn't it yeah martin contero is a, a friend and contributor of the magazine um, wrote in to say it's like willy wonka on bath salts which all right I quite like um, yeah it's a strange one I, I think watching it today in in a time of connected universes mm. and these expanded franchises Nowadays, this sort of thing would maybe make sense and there would be an yeah. appetite for it and, and you can kind of see what they were trying to do, but it just doesn't really work as a standalone 
movie, I guess it's okay if you take it on its own terms, but just as a, as a Halloween movie, obviously it has virtually no connection. I'm very fascinated by the subtitle, Season of the Witch, because <laughs> to me there is nothing... There's no witch. There's nothing demonstrably no that suggests witches. Uh, they could have basically tucked anything onto the end of that. Well, I think presumably they couldn't call it the Silver Shamrock Conspiracy or whatever. <laughs> no, <laughs> would have been no, a sensible title. Masks. Yeah. But at least, I mean, there's certain connotations which come up with words like witches. For me, this yeah. is a bit more like invasion of the body snatchers or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they just maybe pitched or sold this film wrong. If it wasn't called Halloween 3 as well, then it, it, it would be a very different... It was just Season of the Witch, despite the fact there are no witches. You know. I mean, there are some interesting ideas in it. One of the interesting ideas in it is the idea that computers and the supernatural may somehow come together to create some kind of super evil. There's one of those lovely kind of 80s scenes where they're in a massive warehouse with five guys in white coats in the middle of a room looking at computer screens with green graphics on and stuff. I should say, you know, to put it in the context of the period, at home... When I normally watch films, because I try and, you know, you want to try and recreate the big screen experience, I've got a screen and a projector. And I borrowed Season of the Witch from a friend of mine who's basically very into this kind of cult, oddball movie. And he lent me it, and I just could not get my projector and the Blu-ray player to talk to each other at all. It took me ages. I was really frustrated. I wasn't enthusiastic about seeing the film at all. I was in a bad mood. (laughs) I ended up just watching it on the tiny telly that we've got. And as soon as it started on the tiny telly, for me, a 45-year-old man, I suddenly realised that was exactly how I should be experiencing this movie because this is absolutely a video rental from the 1980s. It doesn't need to be seen on a cinema. It's the kind of film that kids would have rented, got their big sister or their big brother to buy them some cheap cider from an off-licence. And I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would because I enjoyed it on the premise that I knew it was going to be crap. And it was Sort of pleasingly crap. I mean, you know, Daniel Chalice is a proper B-movie lead. He's got a moustache. He's great, I think. The thing that really scuppers the film, and this is never a good sign when your your two main characters basically hook up within about 20 minutes. Yeah, and she's like 21. It's a bit creepy but these it's days. But sort of apropos of nothing as well. They, Her they're, dad's they're in just a, died. They're, yeah, they're, they're in a, they find themselves in a motel and they just suddenly kiss yeah. and it's like oh More okay kiss. we've basically run out of script already so we're just going to like that was shoehorn their, in a love scene that was their first day shooting as well it's a, it's, a, it's a good nice to meet you yeah. isn't it part of the problem is it's, it's not it doesn't really know what it is so, but it, it has these kind of elements of other John Carpenter movies although it's, I mean it's one of those ones where it's not a John Carpenter movie but you know his influence is all there just not enough mm. so it was made by this guy called Tommy Lee Wallace who's basically like a protege of his and never really did much apart from sequels and straight to video stuff but you know it has a sort of John Carpenter's score a couple of the special effects although they're ropey there's one scene where a female cat I'm trying to talk about it without (laughs) do we need to worry about spoilers I wouldn't worry about spoilers the the bit where where the woman basically gets lasered by lasered in the face while she's lying in bed they reminded me of those effects in the thing and you know I mean they're not up to that standard but they're they're trying to do something. I should really know this, but does it predate They Live? Yeah, it does, because They, they Live's actually quite late 80s. That's, that's interesting, I think, because it's... I mean, there's obviously, like, thematically, there's yeah. comparisons there. It's got this whole, like, technophobia, very anti-consumerism, very anti-capitalism. Yeah. I mean, if you kind of read it as a, as a sort of metaphor for, you know, the ills of, the of American of, capitalism, yeah. it's, it's quite interesting, <laughs> really, but... Just as a kind of, I feel like you're struggling there, really. I think that is exactly what people have done with this film since it's been like, oh no, it's actually a very intelligent film, and I'm like, oh, 
pounds, is it though? Is it really though? I think it's just that sometimes people, because like I say, I really enjoyed it in the end last night. I wouldn't have done if it was two hours long. Don't get me wrong, but it's only an hour and a half anyway. Um, so it doesn't really outstay its welcome. I think you can watch a film and you can enjoy it, even though it's absolutely oh, crap. Yeah. And sometimes people feel like because they've enjoyed it, they have to give Cut you a reason it. that it's you know actually this must be really good because I enjoyed it. I'm not you know I enjoy the fact that the robots in this movie because it's a Halloween movie and for seemingly no other reason other than that when they get sort of decapitated or punched in the stomach or whatever bright orange goo comes out of their mouths it's like people have gone you know the way ash dies in alien where that sort of milky fluid comes out which is really quick let's do that but let's make it orange because it's halloween it's absurd but i didn't mind that we had a comment from um brad thorne saying it's objectively not a good film but so joyously batshit that I can't help yeah. but love it. And that's the other kind of... We have the the people that are like, oh, actually, there's a lot of deeper meaning there. And the ones who are like, no, it's just really weird. And I like that it's weird. Yeah. And it's very much of its time. It's an interesting relic to look at and be like, oh, well, this was it, kind of the proto for these expanded universes. And it very much has that... St- Stranger Things aesthetic, doesn't it? Some people will just enjoy that aesthetic of it being yeah, the an early 80s. Yeah, nature of it, yeah. Exactly. Um, Henry Heffer wrote in to say that um, he remembers a hat toss over a security camera that is out of this world. I think we should take a moment to I appreciate waited, that I waited moment. all movie for that because it comes in at about 1 minute 19 of a film that's like one thirty-three yeah. long. And I was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically somebody taking off a rubber mask and throwing it from a distance over a security camera so that no one can see that he's escaping. But his, his arms are like bound as well. So it's quite a r- remarkable throw. <laughs> he kind of just tosses it up in the air. It is a remarkable... Do you know what it is I think I thought that it must have been like a really a remarkable like... achievement when they shot it and actually yeah. um, it, there's just an edit <laughs> there's just an edit in there Magic of cinema. Um, it's, it's not Sigourney doing a over the head basketball no it, exactly <laughs> you know I don't really believe that they spent 45 takes trying no. to get it right on the subject of masks though you had a really interesting anecdote when we went to go and see Halloween I'd read something about the film Baby Driver yeah and basically how they wanted to use the Michael Myers mask yes. for the getaway scenes. And uh, yeah, apparently the producers of, of Halloween, the new one, said no. had said no. And, and that's I, why I suppose, they did a Mike Myers Which gag. is why they do Mike Myers instead. Uh, oh, well, Austin which Powers. I always felt like it doesn't quite work as a joke because he's not called Michael Myers. I mean, I can see it's a joke <laughs> that we've all thought of over the years. It's, it's funny that looking back at Baby Driver, the moment in the film where they put on the, the Austin Powers masks, mm. you're kind of th- you, it's funny because it's absurd, yes. but equally you don't really understand, it, and they don't really explain it, no. and it's sort of like a feels like a last minute thing that they that they threw in. Can we have a thirty second chat about the best rubber masks in the movies? The best rubber masks. Come on, I'm only saying oh, this because I th- I'm, I've got an immediate got yeah point blank. The president. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. But I also have to give credit to uh, the Mission Impossible franchise for like the best. Point use break, of... I should say, not point blank. Different movie. The Do Mission Impossible franchise. Yeah, Mission Impossible franchise for their ridiculous use of masks over their six film history, where it's just like surprise, it's a mask. It's again, ex- every single movie. It's a, always an extraordinary moment when that real person peels it off. It gets me every time, every single time. It's like it didn't look like a rubber. I'm watching Fallout, and I'm going. How? How is this still like good cinema to me? That, but it works. I quite like the one in um, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. Oh yeah, oh, that it's he puts so on, and that is actually apparently it is a, f- a famous old mask that stunt drivers and people would wear. It's like a kind of a model that is, is basically just they've got it in in stock everywhere for for stunt drivers. So it's almost to like use. an in so joke like, for stunt drivers. It's almost like an in joke, yeah. 
I, I just want to finally mention that the Michael Myers mask in the new Halloween movie, although I think it's the same in all the others, the fact that it has hair attached makes it a bit doubly weird. There's something mm. a bit trumpy about the hair when somebody's <laughs> actually... The couple of times when people are actually picking up the mask, You're like, Ooh. picking it up by the hair, it's yeah. just like... Ugh. I never get over the fact it was an inside-out William Shatner mask. Like That, to me, will always be just so great. It's one of those things that just leaps out a few times every Halloween movie. You're like, that's William Shatner inside out. <laughs> why, did, why did it have to be inside out? I think it, I well I can't. Remember. Otherwise, it would have just really obviously been William. Sh- oh, would it? I this is, ter- this is a terrible. Know. This is terrible podcast chat. But I can't remember the exact story. But I think it was they couldn't get the rights to like uh, use it, so they were like, "Well, turn it inside out." No, no, no. And but why would they have wanted to get the rights well, to use a William Shatner mask? That would have been a very different movie. <laughs> I don't know if it was that or the other. The other thing I may have read is that they were just trying to you know, figure out something that would look scary. So, you know, well, let's turn it inside out. Let's cut the eyes a bit more. And that's how they kind of got to, oh, actually, this this could work. But either way, you know, stroke a genius. I wish we could just talk about rubber masks every week. And maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we will. Because uh, next week, we're going to be doing all sorts of good stuff. I'll tell you about that in a second. But you should get in touch with us. Get in touch with us about things you think we should cover for Film Club in, uh, in future episodes. Get in touch with us if you think that we're really wrong about Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Please send in your full-length dissertations about why no, it's please, such a brilliant movie. Please Hannah do says, not don't. do that. Hannah do will not, do that. Hannah will not I've, be I've reading them. F- I have fielded many of your tweets this week about Halloween 3. I get it. <laughs> guys you really like halloween 3 thank you feel free to tweet hannah <laughs> about anything on the subject of halloween uh, it leaves me to say thank you very much to adam thank you thank you very much to hannah thank you it's been an absolute pleasure and on next week's trees and movies freddie mercury biopic bohemian rhapsody can we say troubled i think we might be able to say that we'll give you the full verdict next week possum and in the film club sam raimi's original and untouchable the evil dead ashley ashley help me Let me out of here. Ashley? Ash, help me. Let me out of here. I'm I'm all right now. I'm all right now, Ashley. I'm all right. Unlock this chain and let me out. This has been a Seven Digital production. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.